I'm Audrey Gelman, CEO and co-founder of The Wing. Let's talk about The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, a show I am personally obsessed with. The Emmy Award-winning series returns for a new season on December 5th, but you still have time to watch season one and get to know Mrs. Maisel's brilliant comedic brain. I mean, any woman who gets arrested for obscenity is all right in my book. Thanks to Amazon Prime Video for their support, and welcome to episode two of No Man's Land. 25 years ago, the novelist Megan Abbott was an English major at the University of Michigan. She'd been reading Plath and decided she wanted to hear her, so she bought a cassette of her poems, brought it back to her dorm room, and pressed play. I was reading the poems in this rev in my head in sort of this rather solemn, dark, bleak way. Um, and then listening to the cassette, it was so different. Mother, who made to order stories of Mixie Blackshort, the heroic bear. Mother, whose witches always, always got baked into gingerbread. I wonder. There was almost a kind of glee and pleasure in the darkness and the violence of the language. A crocodile of small girls, knotting and stopping, ill-assorted in blue uniforms, opens to swallow me. It was just so powerful. It just changed the way I was reading the poems, and it changed the way I thought about women and um, aggression and anger. When you kick me out, that's what I'll remember. Me, sitting here, bored as a leopard, in your jungle of wine bottle lamps. Plus critics, most of them male, had no such realization. And that dismissive attitude has been applied to every new generation of Plath readers, who must be, according to the stereotype, oh, it's the the moody goth girl and her moody dark music. As if Plath is a phase one grows out of. And who better to illustrate that dynamic than Woody Allen and Diane Keaton in the 1977 movie Annie Hall? Hey, well, listen, hey, you want to come upstairs and and have a glass of wine or something? No, I know, I mean... Alvy Singer, the Woody Allen character's romance with Annie Hall, played by Diane Keaton. Um, the first time he visits her apartment, he sees that she has Ariel by Sylvia Plath, and and he um, calls her an, an interesting poetess, uh, romanticized by the college girl mentality. Woody Allen's character actually goes a little bit further. He says that college girls, quote, romanticize her tragic suicide. He doesn't even deign to consider that Plath's work is valuable, that the interest is in her actual poetry and her novel. It's the morbid parts of her biography and the presumption of the college girl's sensational interest in it that explains why Annie Hall has a copy of Ariel on her bookshelf. Sorry. Right. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, some of her poems seem neat. Neat? Neat, yeah. I hate to tell you, this is 1975. You know, the neat went out, I would say, at the turn of the century. <laughs> who, who, who are those photos? I just remember feeling that at that time, seeing that, that he was right, um, which now shames me to ponder, but that, that there was something small and silly about me and about these poems. But that was a long time ago. Since college, Megan's authored six books. Her most recent novel, You Will Know Me, was actually written to the soundtrack of Plath's poetry, that very same recording she listened to in college. I was sort of, well, you know, fuck that, this is, this is alive. Our kind multiplies. We shall by morning inherit the earth, our foot's in the door. Because Sylvia Plath is not a phase. Welcome to No Man's Land, a podcast about women who are too bad for your textbooks. 
I'm your host, Alexis Ko, the in-house historian for The Wing, a network of work and community spaces for women. Every week, I'm going to introduce you to a woman who broke the rules, who history forgot about, ignored, or just got wrong. People reading meaning into things that are that are not meant to be autobiographical are doing her harm. Here's what most people know about Sylvia Plath. She killed herself. Maybe they also know that she wrote a poem called Daddy or a novel called The Bell Jar, but her suicide, that's the dominant narrative. She's Medea, always hurtling towards her own destruction. But that's only because we know how her story ends. I think we read her life backwards. That's Heather Clark, author of The Grief of Influence, Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. Several biographies, the first chapter is about her death and her suicide. And so they read the life backwards. And I think we need to read the life forwards. And that's exactly what we're going to do, with a little help from Sylvia Plath herself. I don't know what started me. I I just uh, wrote from the time I was quite small. That's Plath on the BBC in 1962. She's 30 years old, living in London, describing her first published piece when she was just an eight-year-old girl in Massachusetts. I guess I like nursery rhymes, and I guess I thought I could sort of do the same thing. I wrote my first poem, my first published poem, when I was eight and a half. It came out in the Boston Traveler. And uh, from then on, I, I... I've been a bit of a professional. She's being modest. As a girl, Plath was publishing in magazines and newspapers. She was winning awards for her paintings and going after every Girl Scout badge she could. Her Girl Scout uniform. <laughs> That's Karen Kukul, the associate curator of special collections at Smith College, where Plath went to school. She was very ambitious. Even as a Girl Scout, she had to earn all the badges she possibly could. I went to see her in Northampton, Massachusetts, hoping to see just a few items from Platt's archives. But what I got was far more. Karen led me into this room with dozens of Platt's archival treasures and allowed me to just kind of wander through her life that way, starting with her Girl Scout uniform. A lot of them have to do with writing, which I find really interesting. So starfinder, writer, bookfinder, outdoor cooking, bibliophile, dancer, hospitality, tree finder, (laughs) scribe, reader. And I know to earn the the reader badge, I think she read something like 40 biographies or 40 books, novels, whatever. Wow. (laughs) All that hard work paid off. Plath won a competitive scholarship to Smith an elite all-women's college her mother, who was a widow with two children, could have otherwise never afforded. So all of it, the patches, the published works, the prizes, it all spoke to this undeniable theme I was seeing throughout her life, one that's completely at odds with this myth of Plath, the perennial depressive. She was relentlessly ambitious. She was hardworking and edgy. But She was also light and fun and feminine. So my first impression of her was pretty. She was pretty and she was smart and she was funny. That's Eleanor Friedman Klein, a friend from Smith. 
After graduation, they stayed in touch, and Ellie, as Plath called her, kept most of their letters. Dear, dear Ellie, welcome, 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 welcome to the Green Isles set in the Silver Sea and all that, to rain custard sauce and Yorkshire pudding. At that time, there weren't that many of us who dyed our hair, and some of us never, but, but Sylvia did. She wanted to be glamorous, and she was. In one photo, she's got platinum blonde hair. It's perfectly set, and she's wearing a little white bikini, smiling brightly on a beach, this million-watt smile. She just looks lively and fun, which are adjectives one does not hear associated with Plath. That is Sylvia. She sent me that picture. That's what she wanted to look like, a sex pot. She felt she was a sex pot, and she wanted to be a sex pot. But then once married, a very loyal, good, you know, upstanding wife. She liked her dresses and her lipstick and writing on her Smith-issued pink paper. It was free to students, and she stole it by the pound. She stole so much that years later, she wrote the bell jar on it. So when I saw a nice stack of it in the Smith archives right next to her typewriter, I couldn't resist asking. Can I? Yes. It's, it's really fun. You should try. So I wrote, I also steal paper. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> she was very proud of the fact that she was a writer. And she once, when I came to her room, she said, look at that. She says, I've gotten 14 rejections. I really am a writer. The life of a writer, which means constantly producing new work, submitting it, getting rejected, is exhausting and demoralizing. The onslaught of rejections usually breaks people with thin skin. And the plath we've been sold, this person who so easily crumbles, she didn't do that. She wasn't precious about her work or others. She was constantly pushing the boundaries. She sort of breaks all the rules, and she talks about the stuff you're not supposed to talk about. This is Megan Abbott again. She talks about, you know, things like menstruation and, um, and sexual pleasure and um, self-violence and feelings of violence towards others, you know. This black boot has no mercy for anybody. Why should it? It is the hearse of a dead foot, the high, dead, toeless foot of this priest who plums the well of his book the bent print bulging before him like scenery. Her writing is sharp and fresh and provocative. And it makes you realize that you've been distracted from the best of Plath, which is her actual work, not her biography. Her poems did feel like weapons, um, and they still do. Obscene bikinis hide in the dunes. Breasts and hips are confectioner's sugar of little crystals titillating the light. Producing new work was key to Plath's happiness. I find myself absolutely fulfilled when I have written a poem, when I'm writing one. Having written one, well, then you fall away very rapidly from having been a poet to becoming a sort of uh, poet in rest, which isn't the same thing at all. When she wasn't happy, she couldn't work. The thing that mostly bothers me is that this, the conception of the crazy poet who, out of her craziness, writes extraordinary poetry. Well, as Sylvia said, when I was crazy, 
all I was was crazy. So if people think that I walked around writing poetry while I was incarcerated in a hospital, they don't know what they're talking about. When I was talking to Heather Clark, the Platt scholar, it became clear that a big part of the problem is that most people conflate her poetry with her life. She wasn't necessarily a confessionalist. She was a surrealist. And I think that sometimes we miss that, that that these poems that seem to be confessing, quote-unquote, are actually not. And Eleanor told me the same thing. Poems are not always based on a person's experiences. Sometimes they are, but, you know, when you drop eggs into hot butter, they do um, make certain noises, like hiss. They do. And everybody would assume that if Sylvia wrote something about eggs hissing in a poem, that somehow that would go back to her darkness and whatever. It didn't at all. It was the sound of the eggs. I am so small in comparison to these organs. I worm and hack in a purple wilderness. The blood is a sunset. I admire it. I'm up to my elbows in it, red and squeaking. I mean, she's, she's, she's being ironic. She's holding something back. She's performing. And she's, in a way, sometimes she's performing uh, the cliches of, of female anger. But, but it's always ironic. She's always one step ahead of us. Tonight, the pots are entombed in an icebox. Tomorrow, they will swim in vinegar like saints' relics. Tomorrow, the patient will have a clean pink plastic limb. The content of her poetry isn't what signaled her depression. It didn't spell impending doom. That's what happened when she couldn't write. The pain that people feel when they are mentally ill is exactly the same pain as people who are physically ill. The pain doesn't change. It's painful and horrifying. The pain that Plath felt at the end of her life was a familiar one. She'd felt it before, when she was just 19 years old, in the summer of 1953, which she'd hoped to spend in a writing seminar, but instead she was at home, in a Boston suburb, not writing anything at all. And if she didn't write, she couldn't keep up with her course load. And if she couldn't keep up with her course load, maybe she'd lose her scholarship, and if she lost her scholarship and still couldn't write, then she wasn't a writer. And that was too much to bear. On August 24th, 1953, Sylvia Plath wrote what she could, a short note to her mother that said that she was going for a walk. But she never left the house. Instead, she went down to the cellar, took a bottle of sleeping pills, and laid down. Beautiful Smith girl missing at Wellesley read the headline in the Boston Globe ahead of what turned into a multi-day search throughout the woods around Plath's house. But it wasn't just a local story. It was reported throughout the country. Three days later, her brother heard a moaning sound beneath the porch in the crawl space. It was Plath coming too. She was put in a mental hospital, McLean in Boston, and placed under the care of Dr. Ruth Barnhouse. Part of her treatment included the same electroshock therapy she later described in the bell jar. 
quote, Then something bent down and took hold of me and shook me like the end of the world. It shrilled through an air crackling with blue light, and with each flash a great jolt drubbed me until I thought my bones would break, and the sap fly out of me like a split plant. If ever this particular illness came up to her again at this level of pain and suffering, she would have no hesitation but to kill herself. Because in those days, what they gave her was electric shock therapy with no drugs or anything. And she described that to me in endless detail and said, I would rather die than go through that again, ever. And now, a word from our presenting sponsor, SAP, where we'll hear from a series of women who inspire us with their fearlessness and creativity. Hi, I'm Alicia Tillman, Chief Marketing Officer at SAP, where we provide companies the technology they need to run at their best and help the world become a better place. There are lots of rules. It's how we dress, what we say, how we compose ourselves, how we comport ourselves. And I think, though, you have to remember to be human. That's Robin Bronk. She's the CEO of the Creative Coalition. Her organization teams up with celebrities like Connie Britton and Judy Bloom. They advocate for women's empowerment in the entertainment industry, creative freedom, and funding for the National Endowment for the Arts. But for Robin, the most important part of being a leader isn't about the deal-making parts of the business. I personally find it find it more successful to sort of just, I don't know how else to say it, get down and jam with the person. If I were having a business meeting with you, I want to know, do you have a family? How long have you been in this position? Why are you in this? It's not just about getting along or being social with others. When you break the rules of formal business conduct in favor of better personal connections, it can be a pretty radical style of leadership. SAP is committed to making the world run better and helping women like Robin break rules to help advance true gender equality. Please visit sap.com forward slash women forward to learn more. Plath returned to Smith, and after graduation, she got a Fulbright and went to Cambridge. On February 26, 1956, she picked up the first and only issue of the St. Boltoff's Review, a literary magazine crammed with the school's best writers. But it was Ted Hughes's poetry that absolutely floored her. I was very impressed, and I wanted to meet him. She didn't just read his poems. She memorized them that very day, and when she saw Ted Hughes at the launch party that night, she marched right up to him and recited his work. Now imagine being Hughes for a moment. He graduated from Cambridge a couple years earlier, and he was just getting known, but not really published a lot. So he's still hanging around Cambridge, and everyone looks very post-World War II. Practical, simple, a little austere— 
And in walks this platinum blonde haired American, looking smart and fresh and put together. And she goes up to him and recites his poetry at him. He was smitten, of course, and Plath, she liked what she saw off the page, too. He was tall and handsome and, as she'd soon learn, a great lover, which was important to her. She'd rated her boyfriend's sexual performances in her journals, and those who did well were often the ones she was most interested in. But most importantly, Ted Hughes recognized her genius, and he made no move to threaten it. We kept writing poems to each other, and... uh... Then it just grew out of that, I guess, a feeling that, that we both were writing so so much and, and having such a fine time doing it, we decided that we should keep on. They were obsessed with each other, and Hughes, unlike a lot of guys she dated, wanted children. Plath had always imagined herself as a writer and a mother, and she imagined this life in which they are writing in a room together in the home where they're raising a family. So to Plath, he's just the perfect package. And she's aware of his faults, He's a known womanizer, but of course, she thinks she's different. She can change him. And I loved reading about their intense, brief courtship, but at the same time, it was like watching a disaster unfold. The startling thing was that she, of all people, got married right away. To me, that was horrific. I mean, I thought, what? Married? They'd been together for four months. They were married in a small Anglican church in London, and they went to Paris and the Mediterranean for their honeymoon. In the beginning, their marriage was just as Plath had imagined. He believed in in Plath. He always, he thought she was a genius. That's Heather Clark again. He wanted her to achieve what he thought she was capable of achieving. And I know that it it seems... um, almost wrong to say this, but in the, in the context of the day, they actually had a progressive marriage. So many women that I talked to, one of the things they said over and over again was, we couldn't believe how, how much Ted took care of the baby. That kind of gender equity is still remarkable today. So imagine how it looked in the 1950s, when men were expected to take on little to no domestic duties, and women, in turn, were expected to have no aspirations outside of being a wife and mother. But Plath did. And the birth of their daughter, Frida, and then their son, Nicholas, a few years later, didn't change that. They were both productive during their marriage. Hughes published Hawk in the Rain, a poetry collection that became a massive breakthrough for him. And then Plath wrote The Bell Jar. They divided up their day. She got the morning. You know, she got sort of 8 to 12 or 8 to 1. And he, he got the afternoon. And so, you know, but but at the same time, she always assumed that his career was more important. She would take over most of the domestic duties. She was his secretary. Um, and she she never really questioned that, that in, the, in that, the hierarchy of the marriage, she was sort of number two. Plath understood that experience and talent wasn't enough. She knew what it took to get published, but even more so, she understood that everyone wasn't like her. Relentless, not only in pursuit of her craft, but in pursuit of sustaining and promoting it. Her PR for Ted was unending. She would send out her poems and his poems, but she would write to me first about his acceptances and second about hers. For a poet, Plath was really practical. 
She truly believed that Hughes was a genius, but she understood recognition rarely just comes to those who most deserve it. I think that the two of them in in the early part of the marriage, they sort of saw themselves as an unstoppable force in Anglo-American poetry. They had to hustle together to be partners in life and work, and they did. They took turns teaching, they did fellowships together, read and critiqued each other's work. They were going to shake up British poetry. Uh, They were going to write in this more sort of bold way. Um, They were more Yeatsian, they were more Laurentian. And uh, the poetry that was popular at the time, um, it was called The Movement, and in a very kind of safe, genteel verse. And uh, so they, yeah, they sort of saw themselves as, as this literary team, and they had similar aims. And then, of course, you know, it all fell apart at the end. We've learned a lot more about that period in just the last couple of years. Letters Plath wrote to Dr. Ruth Barnhouse, the psychiatrist who treated her in the United States, stunned the literary community. They're still working through them, reconciling them with different accounts. A note before I move on. What starts here, which is talk of violence, will end in Plath's suicide. We knew that Plath had had a miscarriage after Frida, but what we didn't know, which Plath wrote to Dr. Barnhouse, is that two days before she miscarried, Hughes beat her. On another occasion, he told her he wished she was dead. And all that happened in 1961, a year before the part everyone knows about. She had had her suspicions when uh, Asia Wevel and her husband David came to Court Green in Devon for a weekend in May of 1962. And soon after, she told Dr. Barnhouse that she'd found a stack of Hughes's poems describing, quote, their orgasms, her ivory body, her smell, her beauty. And she was heartbroken and humiliated, as you'd expect. But for me, the craziest thing about that particular letter is that she praised her cheating husband's work. Many are fine poems, she wrote to Dr. Barnhouse. Her reactions to the rest of the affair were more predictable. Later, Asia called Court Green and Sylvia picked up the phone. And uh, Asia, Sylvia thought Asia disguised her voice to sound like a man. And she asked for Ted. And this was the moment when Sylvia Plath sort of knew what was happening, and she she ended up ripping the phone cord out of the wall. And he finally left Court Green on October 12th, 1962, for good. And that's the way the story goes. And in our minds, which is aided by a slew of bad movies, we see Plath totally unhinged in this moment. We imagine her mad with heartbreak. Sometimes I feel like I'm not... Solid. I'm hollow. There's nothing behind my eyes. I'm a negative of a person. But what Plath tells Dr. Barnhouse is totally different. She didn't slam the front door behind him. She actually dropped Hughes off at the station with his luggage. And what happened next is surprising. It was surprising to even Plath herself. She wrote... I returned to the empty house expecting to be morbid, but I was ecstatic. I felt the most fantastic exhilaration. And to me, the story checks out. 
With Hughes out of the way, Plath was able to focus on herself, and it seems like she was hell-bent on surviving. The evidence is there plain as day in the work and the promotion of it. Just two weeks later, she was on the BBC, and she sounds happy, perfectly comfortable with herself and with her situation. Well, uh, I think that as far as language goes, I'm an American. I'm afraid I'm an American. My accent's American. My way of talk is an American way of talk. I'm an old-fashioned American. That's probably one of the reasons why I'm in England now and why I always stay in England. It almost seems like she's making a declaration. I'm here to stay, and I'm going to proceed exactly as I have been. I'm going to continue to raise my family, and I'm going to continue to write. And she makes yet more moves to ensure this. She moves to London, and she rents a flat at 23 Fitzroy Road in Primrose Hill. A plaque hung outside noting that W.B. Yeats had lived there. It was the perfect setup for a triumph. Gail Crother is the author of The Haunted Reader and Sylvia Plath. And she agrees. It wasn't hard to see that Plath was about to catapult to the next level. She was invited to be on the panel of a BBC radio show called The Critics, uh, in which there were three people. It's a very prestigious uh, position to be offered, in which uh, they would have looked at various plays and novels and things that, you know, in the arts that were being released, and then they would record and review them. And, you know, she was asked to be a permanent member of that panel, which would have started in May 1963. Writers are desperate for that kind of shot, to be a permanent member It's not just a coveted position, it's a powerful one. It was encouraging as she turned 30, as was Hughes' agreeing to a divorce. She had this incredible outburst of creativity. She woke up every single morning at 5 a.m. and wrote a poem. In total, she wrote about two dozen of her most powerful poems, including Daddy, during this month. Al Alvarez, poetry editor of The Observer, told her that Ariel, as she had called the collection, would win the Pulitzer Prize. And then winter came. The snow was piled high that January, and there were no plows in London. They had never seen such snow. And so it kept changing forms, from sludge to ice and back again, during a season Plath did not fare well in. She wrote to her mother, I must stop identifying with the seasons because this English winter will be the death of me. It wasn't just the seasons. Plath was a single mom and her days were an exhausting performance that left her with little time or energy to write. Frida was in nursery school a couple of days a week and Nicholas, their second child, napped. But that was basically it. In a letter to her mother, she wrote that she was, quote, under the steamroller of decisions and responsibilities of this last half year, with the babies a constant demand. And then reviews of The Bell Jar, published first in the UK, arrived, and they were mixed. It was a particularly harsh blow because she'd written it with purpose, and it wasn't necessarily literary. The Bell Jar was supposed to be a potboiler, a bestseller. She wrote to her mother, I'm going to start seeing a woman doctor free on the national health, assuring it would help her, quote, weather this difficult time. There are various stories about her going to friends' houses, crying, saying she was leaving the country for good. 
but she continued to write, to make plans, and to dress well and do her hair. But her doctor, who had just prescribed antidepressants, began calling to check on her. He wanted her to check into a hospital. She, of course, thinking back to her hospitalization ten years earlier, had no intention of doing that. But she did agree to a nurse, who was scheduled to start on February 11, 1963. Sylvia Plath was a living, loving, spirited, beautiful girl and woman. And I expected that she would just become more and more known and produce more and more wonderful work. That's what you expect. You don't expect somebody to crash into a tree or into their darkest selves. On the day the nurse was supposed to start, Plath left out food for her children, placed a note on the carriage with her doctor's numbers and instructions to call, sealed the rooms between her and Frida and Nicholas, still sleeping, with tape, towels, and cloths. At 4.30 a.m., she turned on the oven, intending for the gas to end her life, and it worked. The nurse found her five hours later. She died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Was I surprised that she killed herself at the at almost the pinnacle of her then-writing life at 30. I mean, of course I was. And, and But when I found out it was because she was ill, I understood. Sylvia Plath is buried in Hepstonstall. Her gravestone is almost always surrounded by flowers, plants and pens left by fans who travel from all over the world to pay their respects to her. And sometimes to enact revenge on Hughes. They weren't divorced at the time of her death, so she's listed as Sylvia Plath Hughes, and that part, her married name, is often defaced. The public not only held him accountable for her suicide, but his handling of her estate, which he as her husband inherited. If he gave a reading, someone would inevitably call him a murderer or yell at him for burning Plath's last journal and losing another. But, by all accounts, he was a decent father. Their daughter, Frida, is always first to defend him. She's an artist, but Nicholas, a fisheries biologist, hanged himself in 2009. Frida said he suffered from depression. After Plath's suicide, her mother blocked the American publication of The Bell Jar for almost a decade. But in 1971, it reached bookstores, and it's been a fixture ever since. In 1982, she won a posthumous Pulitzer Prize for her collected poems, a legacy she most certainly would have approved of. Though in the case of her last work, Ariel, a legacy she had not intended. Plath left Ariel um, on her desk in her in her bedroom um, when she died, and, and she had a very strict order for it. The last poem was Wintering, and the last word of Wintering is Spring. She wanted the book to end with the word spring, which of course conjures up imagery of rebirth and hopefulness and renewal. And uh, Hughes changed the order, um, and he put in some poems that she had not included with Ariel. Um, in his version of Ariel. And so 
It ended with Edge, his version of Ariel. Sylvia Plath spent the weeks before her death laboring over that order, and it was supposed to tell the story of her own survival. She was the phoenix rising up from the ashes of her marriage. But she didn't. She didn't rise, she didn't survive, and thanks to Hughes, she didn't even get to choose the order of her last collection. But that's something we're going to do for her here. We can end how she wanted, with the vision of spring. The bees are all women, maids and the long royal lady. They have got rid of the men. The blunt, clumsy stumblers, the boars, winter is for women. The woman still at her knitting, at the cradle of Spanish walnut, her body a bulb in the cold and too dumb to think. Will the hive survive? Will the gladiolas succeed in banking their fires to enter another year? What will they taste of, the Christmas roses? The bees are flying. They taste the spring. No Man's Land is a co-production of The Wing and Pineapple Street Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alexis Coe. Our executive producers are Audrey Gelman, Deidre Dyer, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. No Man's Land is produced by Anne Hepperman and edited by Diane Hodson. Cameron Mesereau composed the music, and her band Glasser wrote the theme with additional music from the band Lola Tone. Special thanks to Suzanne Demko, Heather Clark, Megan Abbott, Gail Crowther, Karen Kukul, Cynthia Pimentel, Leela Day, Maddie Sprunkheiser, Dina Kleiner, Excerpts from Sylvia Plath provided by the BBC, the British Council, and the Woodbury Poetry Room, Harvard University. To learn more about Sylvia Plath, check out Heather Clark's book, The Grief of Influence, Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, and Gail Crowther's book, The Haunted Reader and Sylvia Plath. If you're interested in a women's-focused workspace and a place to hang in New York, L.A., D.C., San Francisco, Chicago, or London, consider The Wing. Apply for membership at www.the-wing.com. Next week on No Man's Land, the story about the moment that changed the life of journalist and activist Ida B. Wells. Thanks for listening.